Good evening and welcome to Spooky South Coast. Tim Weisberg here, along with science advisor Matt Moniz, the silent assassin Matt Costa, Stephanie Burke, and Lauren Allison all have the night off. It's That's what happens in the summertime. People have things they have to do. Except me. I'm always here. Except when I'm not. And we are here to talk about the paranormal, as we are each and every Saturday night, although tonight we're taking things in kind of a different direction. Uh, joining us in just a little while will be Jeff Mudgett. He is the author of Bloodstains, and he's a direct descendant of Henry Webster Mudgett, also known as H.H. H. Holmes, America's first serial killer, America's Jack the Ripper, the subject of a forthcoming film being directed by Martin Scorsese. Now, I think most common people say Martin Scorsese, but the, you know, the people that are in the biz say Scorsese. But uh, either way, you know who he is. He's the director of The Departed and, and many other great films over the years. He'll be tackling the subject of H.H. H. Holmes, starring uh, Leonardo DiCaprio, which I believe is the... He's going to be at least be the third or the fourth actor that I've heard associated with the role over the years. Because at one point it was going to be Tom Cruise. I remember hearing that. Um, and then we had mentioned off the air Johnny Depp. He was somebody else who had been discussed. And I want to say there was somebody else, too, before... Uh, they finally agreed on Leonardo DiCaprio, but that's who they're going with. So that's uh, who we'll be seeing in the film. And uh, we'll be discussing the case throughout the course of the night. Of course, we have a very special guest here in studio with us. We have Maurice Desjardins, who is uh, the author of a book on H.H. H. Holmes called The Devil's Alibi. Uh, and also, we've had him on the show previously, and you know him. We've talked about him many times, even when he's not here. We'd like to talk about you, Maurice, when you're not here. <laughs> very good. I'm glad to hear that. But uh, he is, of course, Matt Moniz. He's the man who helped you learn all that you know about the paranormal. Just give everybody kind of a brief synopsis of how you met Maurice and, and started working with him. I met Maurice well, going back 20-plus-something years. Um, I was doing a bunch of research, and I was scouring various bookstores and metaphysic shops to find information about you know the paranormal, UFOs, and stuff like that. And uh, Crystal Expectations is one of the places I would frequent looking for material. Mm -hmm. And uh, CJ is like, I got a person you should meet if you're interested in this stuff. And uh, she put me in contact with Maurice. And Maurice thankfully guided me through all kinds of, you know, book research. What books to read first and in what order and what, what to look at in terms of who, you know, who is worth reading and who isn't worth, you know, that much. So you're not wasting time. And I'm very thankful for having somebody that has been through that years before me to to impart that wisdom to me. So I wasn't wasting time, basically. And uh, he basically cultured me and allowed me to learn a, a lot of different things about the paranormal that I wasn't aware of and through that research, I was able to, you know, tie various things together that I wouldn't have been able to without some sort of tutelage. So what did you think about this this kid coming up and, uh, and asking you for help? Well, what actually uh, occurred was he was at his grandmother's house in Fairhaven. Well, that uh, event, yeah. Yeah, and that's really the first time we met. And uh, he saw a mothership. As strange as that may sound... And uh, we interviewed him, and uh, it, it just went from there, basically. I, I'm sure he's told about that story many times. Well, the, the good thing about it is, is uh, there we go, we get the shot on. Yeah. I, was, I, I had to refresh. Yeah. But the, uh, the good thing about uh, 
you know, we talk all the time about fate and about things coming together. And and so you end up mentoring Moniz and getting him uh, involved and, and, and getting him on the right track. And it's funny because almost immediately when we first started involving him in the Spooky South Coast show, he spoke about returning the favor for what you had taught him because we knew him, and I've told this story before, but for those who are new to the show, Matt Costa and I worked together at a restaurant for many years. We've been friends forever, but we worked together at a restaurant, and down the street from that restaurant was a biker bar. And when we first turned 21, we... Even before that. <laughs> we decided to go hang out at the biker bar. And, and, and they took us in, and they were great to us. They let us come down and hang out, and we knew Matt as the sound guy there. We knew him as Matt the sound guy. And he would come in, and he would eat, and we would talk to him about some of the bands that had been down there, and, and that's where we knew him from. And we started the show in January of 2006, and I think it was uh, around, you know, sometime around March yeah. of 2006, he had come into the restaurant where we worked, and the waitress was talking to him about the show that we were doing. And he calls me out of the kitchen, and he looks at me and he says, what do you know about the paranormal? <laughs> and I said to him, well, I, I don't know much. That's why I want to do this radio show so that I can learn. And he's like, that's the right answer. Let me know whatever I can do to help you out. And so we told him to come on by and just come that night and get a feel for the show. And he, he came in with a stack of, uh, of a folder, literally, with a stack of ideas and different show topics and things we could explore. And he talked to us that night about, you know, what you had done for him and, and the path you had put him on and that he wanted to help us out and, and put us on a similar path. And we said, well, if you're going to do that, then you're going to be here with us every night. He was actually reluctant. Uh, and people still say to me this day, they're like, you know, Moniz doesn't really talk a lot on the show. You don't give him a chance to talk a lot. And I think that people don't understand that your role that you always wanted was to kind of be on the sidelines and just helping out. Right. I, I've done my tour duty, so to speak, in, in the paranormal in the past, as Maurice can attest to. <laughs> and, um, you know, I was actively involved back in the day. I now have you and a bunch of other people that I'm helping out. This is, you, you've nailed it right on the head. I'm trying to set up you guys to be the ones to carry the torch here in the future. And, and you know, it's when you can have a resource, somebody that you can, and it's been great. I mean, for us, it's been great with this show because everybody has been willing to help us out over the years. So we've, you can pick up the phone and call somebody, and, and even if they don't come on the show as a guest, they're willing to be there as a resource. And so there's been so many great people that have had the pleasure. I mean, one of the, the nights that I was the most honored ever was to be able to have a phone conversation with Hans Holzer, even though he totally crapped on me for the entire conversation. <laughs> it was just great to actually, you know, I, I was asking him, can we have you come on the show? It would be so great to have you come on the show. And he's like, well, what's your audience? size and when i told him the reach of the ray he's like no that's too small time for me when you guys get more big time then you can call me back but just to you know have 45 minutes to an hour on the phone with them was uh, was fantastic but that's been kind of the journey of this show over the years and i think that this subject tonight that we'll be talking about hh holmes kind of brings that all back together because we had maurice on years ago when we first started doing the show and we touched upon this topic and it was something that you know i had never even heard of him and now 10 years later you can't escape this story. It's it's tied into so much. You know, you can't study any type of true crime story without it relating back to H.H. H. Holmes. So we're, we're going to have a great time uh, coming up talking about that subject. And, of course, the phone lines will be open throughout the course of the night, 
877-996-1420. And while we're talking about mentors and we're talking about influences and people who have uh, shaped us as who we are, of course, we have to give a huge shout-out to Art Bell. There wouldn't, oh, yeah. there wouldn't be an interest in this topic on the radio if it wasn't for Art Bell. And I know, you know, Art Bell was kind of just carrying the mantle that Long John Nebel and others had started before him. But Art is the guy that so many of us listen to and, 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 and the connection that was made. Because back in the day of, you know, when, when Moni started and certainly Maurice, when you started, it wasn't as easy as just going on a computer and searching for resources. You know, it was a network that had to be built. There were no computers, Tim. But there was, you, I mean, you had what? You had, hopefully, you'd be able to track, if you needed to find somebody as a resource, you hoped that through their published works, you could track them down through the phone book and reach out that way. When I first uh, was introduced to Holmes, it was in the middle 1970s, and I was introduced to him through the Guinness Book of World Records. And uh, he cut, he fascinated me immediately. A castle in the middle of Chicago? Right. right. Yeah. You know, I just couldn't possibly comprehend how this guy could have existed at that time. And so I began to do more and more research. And as I accumulated my research, uh, people from all over the world actually contacted me. I was uh, approached by a French uh a uh, writer of uh, uh, documentaries, and he uh, he wrote to me wanting to know all about Holmes. And so then I, I decided I'd go visit where he was born. And he was born in Gilmanton, New Hampshire, as most people now know, perhaps. <laughs> it, 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 it's that strange connection, I think, to New England for a guy who is uh, so... You know, world-renowned, you know, uh, born in New Hampshire, captured in Boston. You know, we, we kind of have some sort of a tie to him, and, and there's certainly a tie-in to, to this area. We're, we're having some technical issues? Yeah, it looks like the thing wants to restart on its own. Oh, good. That always happens. All right, well, we'll fudge our way through Spooky TV. But, of course, uh, we are broadcasting, speaking of Art Bell, on the Dark Matter Radio Network as well and rebroadcast. And, and folks, if you're new to the Spooky South Coast program, if you haven't heard us before, go back and listen to our 10 years of archives. Listen to us on iTunes or wherever podcasts are found and, and really be able to dig into some of these topics. And that's what's great about this show is it's a, it's a venue for us to, to get deep into the story. So... Even though we're going to touch upon Holmes tonight for you know the next two hours, it's going to hopefully foster people to go out and pick up Maurice's book, pick up our guest Jeff Mudgett's book, pick up Devil in the White City by Eric Larson, some of these other books, and, and really research the topic even further. And we, lo- we love to hear back from people that say, you know, you led me down that road of, of researching these topics. And we try to do – one of the things about Moniz, too, when we got started in this, we were armchair quarterbacking the paranormal myself and Matt Costa, we didn't want to go out there and do investigations. We wanted to talk to the people who were. And Moniz came in and said, ah, that's not going to work. Yeah. If you're going to talk about it, you're going to go out there and you're going to experience it because it's the only way you're going to know what you're talking about. And he was the kick in the pants for us to get out and start investigating. And, and now, through our Legend Trips events, we've become that conduit for other people to do the same thing. And Matt is a, a true experiencer. <laughs> in more ways than one. And it's an experience to go out there with him, too, I must say. I must say. 
but uh, with with the Legend Trips events now, you know, we're getting that influence. You're you're able to show people, and I know that people have gone back to you and, and asked you uh, for advice outside of the events as well. But we've created this this pathway for people to explore the topic on their own, uh, you know, boots to the ground style as well. And and now we've got more events stacked up now for the fall. I, uh, there's so much stuff that's going to be happening that. Uh, I, I can't even begin to fathom. Well, first of all, when are we going to sleep? Sleep? What's that? Right. We'll sleep in November because we've got an event coming up on September 18th uh, on the USS Salem in which we will have our first ever Friday night event. We've always done these on Saturday nights. This will be our first Friday night event where you can come and explore the USS Salem with us and, and Jeff Belanger and Andrew Lake and, and really get a chance to explore every nook and cranny of this gigantic 770-foot ship uh, in Quincy. And then we'll go from that in October. We'll be back on the South Coast for another event that I can't reveal all the details yet. But I will say that it's a place that everybody wants to get into. We're pretty much the only people they allow to have access to some of these locations uh, in this complex. And it's going to be a huge event that we'll be doing with the radio station. So once everything is finalized, hopefully this week we'll be able to uh, announce all of that. But that will be coming up. I will at least tell you to save the date of October 17th. And then I've just been in touch with the Wareham Historical Society this week about getting back in and doing an event at the Faring Tavern and those other associated buildings in Wareham. So we're going to be doing that as well coming up in October, still trying to finalize a date for that. And, of course, uh, I'll be out doing a bunch of different library lectures, and I'll be teaching a course at uh, Amy Bruni's Strange Escapes uh, here in New Bedford, also in October. So we're going to have that calendar up there for people to see where they can come and learn and experience things for themselves, and, and we'll be passing that torch on again ourselves. And it's so weird to think that 10 years ago, you know, we were those wide-eyed kids just <laughs> learning about this stuff, and now people are coming to us for advice. I mean, I've, I've gotten, you know, five or six Facebook messages this week from people asking for help. And I'm like, why are you asking me? And I said, because you know. And I'm like, well, I, I guess I kind of do. Yeah. So it's, you know, it's it's great that we've kind of come full circle with a lot of things. And speaking of coming full circle, uh, of course, Matt Moniz, one of the primary topics of your research is UFOs and UFO abduction cases. Correct. And coming up uh, on August 28th, it'll be a great weekend of Experiencer Speak Conference 2015. Uh, this is taking place at the Fireside Inn at 81 Riverside Street in Portland, Maine. Uh, the list of speakers is just an amazing group of people. Uh, for anybody that studies ufology or even has a passing interest, these are some of the biggest names in that field. Grant Cameron, Kathy Marden, Travis Walton, uh, Denise Stoner, Reverend John M. Polk, Mike Clowen, Suzanne Chancellor. I mean, the list goes on and on. And what's great about this event is you get the chance to actually talk to these people one-on-one. It's not just hearing them speak. It's actually getting to speak with them on a one-on-one basis and, and really getting into the root of their story. And, and maybe you've had an experience yourself. Maybe you think that you have been abducted or visited, and you want to share that with other people, like-minded people that are willing to hear and not judge. This would be the place to do so. And, again, it's happening the weekend of August 28th uh, at the Fireside Inn in Portland, Maine. If you go to experiencerspeak.yolasite.com, you can get your tickets directly there. Uh, you can also contact Audrey Hewins directly for info and tickets at aah3273 at yahoo.com. And if you have any trouble 
uh, finding all of this information, you can just hit us up on Twitter or Facebook at Spooky SC uh, or Spooky South Coast on Facebook, and we'll be happy to share this information with you that way as well. So you'll be there all weekend, Moni. Oh, yeah. And uh, it's going to be a great event. And not just the guest speakers are there that are people you may know from, you know, abduction experiences. There are a lot of other uh, well-known uh, abductee or experiences that show up that aren't there to speak, but they're still approachable. I'll give you a good example. A lot of the Allagash guys show up every year, and th- they make themselves open and available if you want to come down and talk to them as well as other abductees. I'm not going to say exactly who, so if you want to find out, show up. <laughs> and, the, and the tickets are very affordable. It's, yeah. a, it's a great weekend and a, a, a great chance to go out and meet some people who, you know, when I see people that are all over the the radio and all over television sharing their experiences, you know, sometimes I'm like, okay, how much can we really take what they're saying, you know, for at face value? But when you go to something like this and you're hearing stories from people who never share these stories with anybody or, or only share them with a very trusted group of people, you know, those are the stories that really interest me. And speaking of stories, you'll hear even more stories, uh, both about abductions and UFOs as, as well as all kinds of other paranormal topics uh, in the Bridgewater Triangle documentary, which will be airing coming up on Destination America on Saturday, September 5th at 10 p.m. It's going to, uh, I forget the actual name, of, I think it's America's Bermuda Triangle is the name of the show that's going to air. But it's actually the Bridgewater Triangle documentary produced by Aaron Cadju and Manny Famolare in a condensed form. Uh, it'll be airing again on Saturday, September 5th at 10 p.m. on Destination America. So if you want to watch it in the comfort of your own home, that's cool. But why not come out and party with us and and really get a chance to talk face-to-face, one-on-one with the people who were involved in the making of the film and those who are featured in the film. It's happening at Christopher's Lounge on Broadway, uh, Route 138 in Raynham, Massachusetts. Not not the New York Broadway. Yeah. That would be a huge production. But <laughs> this is happening <laughs> on Route 138 in Raynham at Christopher's Lounge. The event will actually kick off at 8 p.m. You can watch the original 90-minute director's cut of the Bridgewater Triangle. Then from 9.30 to 10 o'clock, we'll have live music from our buddy Carlson Wood and a meet and greet with the film's cast and crew. And then at 10 o'clock, everybody will sit down and watch the condensed version, and then we'll all complain about who got cut out. Who got their interview on the cutting room floor uh, for that version of the show? And, of course, they will have Bridgewater Triangle official merchandise that will be available for purchase throughout the course of the event. I think I'm going to have to get myself one of the hats. The hats, you know, the the T-shirt you can only wear one day until you do the laundry. The hat you can wear every day. So I I can look just like Aaron. People will confuse me with Aaron. Yeah, that's possible. (laughs) Sure. So uh, we are looking forward to that event coming up on Saturday, September 5th, uh, again at Christopher's Lounge on Route 138 in Raynham. And if you can make it, great. Join the Facebook event page there. Let us know that you can make it. Uh, But if not, of course, you can always watch it on Destination America, or you can actually order the full-length director's cut of the DVD. All right, well, we're going to take a break. When we come back on the other side, we'll be joined by our guest tonight, Jeff Mudgett. We'll be talking about... H.H. Holmes, uh, of course, his relative, but also the subject of his book, Bloodstains, and we'll talk more about that with him, and and as well as we'll reveal to him who the surprise guest is that we have in tonight, because we've talked uh, in the past, Jeff and I personally, uh, about Maurice, so I think he'll be pretty excited to have the chance to speak with you tonight, and of course, we will speak to you all as well, 508-996-0500. 
877-996-1420. Back in a moment with more Spooky South Coast here on the new 1420 WBSM and on the Dark Matter Radio Network. Welcome back to Spooky South Coast. Tim Weisberg with you, along with science advisor Matt Moniz and our special guest co-host tonight, Maurice Disjardins, the author of The Devil's Alibi. And we are broadcasting live here on WBSM as well as on Spooky TV at SpookySouthCoast.com. A bit of an extended commercial break there as we fixed the online video stream, but it's all up and running now. So it uh, it only took, what, about 10, 15 minutes? Yeah. For that computer to restart itself, and and it hasn't been giving me any problems at all. I uh, just updated it and upgraded it to Windows 10 and all that, and everything's been running smooth. And I've been turning it off and on, so it had plenty of time to operate. It's just when we come in here and we start talking about these topics, this is the kind of stuff that happens to us. Unfortunately, that's uh, what what you have to learn to expect when you're dealing with these subject matters. But that's all right because we can work our way through it. And actually, we have joining us on the line. We are honored to have him finally joining us. It's uh, been a while that we've been trying to work things out, but we have joining us on the line, Jeff Mudgett. Good evening, Jeff. How are you? Tim, nice to hear from you. Uh, looking forward to being on your show again. And, and thank you so much for waiting while we were trying to fix the technical issues. You know, that happens a lot, and uh, I'm patient, and I know you guys were working as hard <laughs> as you could to get it fixed. Well, and we were able to secure a special guest co-host for tonight. I don't know if you heard while you were on hold, but we have Maurice Disjardins, the author of The Devil's Alibi, here with us. And I know that you and I, uh, when we were in Lake George last year, we talked about Maurice's book and about his research into H.H. Holmes. So I was very happy when Moniz, uh, Matt Moniz, my co-host, said, we're going to have Maurice join us tonight. So we should have a really great discussion here with somebody who knows you know, far more than Matt Moniz and I do about H.H. Holmes. So you can expect some really good questions uh, coming from the group here. All right, let's do it. Well, of course, now, for those who don't know, uh, we're talking about H.H. H. Holmes, America's first real serial killer, as under the modern definition of the word, America's Jack the Ripper, and, and maybe even the other Jack the Ripper, too. We'll get into all of that. But, of course, his real name is Herman Mudgett, and uh, it's not a coincidence that you both share the same last name. No, he was my great-great-grandfather, my grandfather's grandfather, a, a fact which I didn't learn until I was about 40 years old when my grandfather, at a dinner party, let the family in on his secret that he'd held close to the vest for over 60 years, and uh, um, we were all shocked, as you can imagine. Oh, sure, but, I mean, how does that conversation happen? I mean, did had anybody in the family heard of, of Henry Mudgett beforehand and, and, and make any kind of connection about the, I mean, sorry, Herman Mudgett, and make any connection about the, uh, the, the possible family connection? No, my grandmother was interested in lineage, and she had, this was long before Ancestry.com. This was when you hired corporations to run, run your background. She thought we were related to General Robert E. Lee of Civil War fame, when she put some money into the effort, 
the uh, organization came back and explained that she should let sleeping dogs lie and uh, that we were related to an Arkansas horse thief. They they tried to soften the blow. (laughs) Well, my grandfather figured it was time to uh, fill the family in, so so he did. And uh, I can still see my grandmother's face in shock. I I tried to write about that dinner party in the book. Um, as my grandmother, you could see it running through her mind how she had never known this fact that my grandfather had lived with his entire life and probably thought about every every five to ten minutes. Well, there's, I mean, every family has its black sheep, although this is probably the blackest sheep of all when you consider all the, uh, the lives that were taken and, and the damage caused, but every family has a relative, you know, that they're, they're not proud of. They have skeletons in the family closet. What was the reaction of the family overall? I mean, how did they, they carry this, this mantle and, and this burden of, of being related to uh, such a heinous individual? Oh, you know, that first dinner party that my brother and I and my cousins, were, we were the sarcastic, witty type. So we played it off, waiting for dessert, made a few jokes. We tried to, uh, tried to uh, make the rest of the family know that, we were going to move on with our life. It had really nothing to do with the decisions we were going to make or the choices we had in life to come. Except when you went home, when I went home that night and thought about, you know, we're, we're talking, and Maurice can jump in anytime he wants. We're talking about arguably maybe the most evil man who ever lived when, when the real story comes out, which is going to happen now that Hollywood is going to make that major motion picture. And, and it's about time. Yeah, and, uh, you know, the, the, let's talk about that pretty soon, but uh, once we have a chance. Um, you know, you're talking about maybe the, the most evil man who ever lived, an evil genius whose decisions, Tim, whose decisions were the reason I was alive. Uh, when you start, when, you, when the human mind starts working through those cobwebs, um, it's, well, it's, an inter- it's an interesting factor to see what comes out on the other end. And quite frankly, I was, for lack of a better word, haunted for a long time. I can imagine that. You know, I nearly met your great-grandmother, <laughs> Clara Levering, and, yeah. uh, up in, uh, in New Hampshire. But she had died several years before I came across... A woman by the name of uh, Paxson, I believe, and she lived with her, and I get you may know or not know that she married a man named Peverly, John Peverly. Sure, yeah. sure, I know that. Yeah. yeah, in fact, I visited her uh, her grave out there where she is buried uh, with her husband. And uh, so you were the, well, not you, but <laughs> your ancestors were the uh, were the offspring, uh, the only uh, son that they had together. Oh, the only legal son. We we should clarify that he had hundreds of mistresses. Who knows? Oh, he had other wives, no question. Yeah. And uh, there are. I tried to chase them down too, but uh, to no avail. In fact, I tried to find a budget. I I looked. And looked and looked, and I could not find oh, anyone. There's, there's quite a few mudgets in New Hampshire. I, I'm contacted by... Uh, yes, oh, but not the right one. <laughs> yeah. Where are you from, sir, if I may ask? Uh, California. Oh, 
okay. Uh, Oakland, California. I was born in Oakland, California. We were a Navy family, so we moved around a bit, but we always came back to California. My dad flew uh, fighter planes in the Navy. Oh. In Vietnam, and uh, so we always went down to the pier and watched him leave on an aircraft carrier and return nine months later. Wasn't uh, your grandfather, didn't, wasn't he a surveyor in New Smyrna, Florida? No, I think he was a politician, but you may be right. I didn't do I much I think he was a surveyor first. <laughs> yeah, that was later on. He was a politician, yes. Yeah. It's always a good way to start. You know, learn the land, then learn the people, and then <laughs> gives you a good advantage. Uh, so now sitting... How does the quest go from sitting at that dinner party uh, and, and making jokes to researching and then writing the book Bloodstains and, and, and really being uh, the foremost spokesperson about H.H. Uh, H. Holmes and, and, and his deeds? Well, I had an inquisitive mind, Jim. I was a, a trial lawyer in California. I was always intrigued with historical facts. I was always fascinated with legend and lore. I knew that most of the books that had been written about H.H. H. Holmes were just plain wrong. Um, I wanted to see if I could find something different to tell the world about a figure, a fiend. You know, I like to call him a monster, which had gone largely undetected for over 100 years by history. And when you, when you consider how horrible he was, it, that's an amazing fact in itself, which we could spend an entire hour debating why that was. And No DNA. And, go ahead. I said there was no, was no DNA or even fingerprints were in the infancy at the time. Oh, but Chicago knew what they had. Chicago knew what had lived in their city, and they had done a great job of hiding it. Is that, is that why the castle was burnt to the ground? No, it never was burnt to the ground. I have pictures of it in 1937 when the federal really? government bought the property. And there's two trucks. Uh, we have the date on the trucks right next to the castle. Really? Um, yeah, it was never burned to the ground. That's one of the that's one of the uh, rumors. Yes, it is. We, uh, we tracked down, and uh, I, as a matter of fact, I went back to Washington, D.C. and ran the records through the post office and found out that um, they had bought the property with the building intact. There had been a fire there, but never to the ground. Uh, hmm. um, and then they, they tore it down, and they built the post office largely in the same plot that's there at 63rd and Wallace. Yes. Well, before, before we get too far ahead of the story, we only have about uh, eight minutes or so left in this hour. Then we'll take a break for the news, and then we'll come back and have a full hour to discuss even further. Uh, but before we get too far ahead of the story, uh, you know, a little bit of a background on on uh, Henry Holmes and, and – I'm sorry, Herman Holmes. I'm going to keep saying that. I know, I know somebody named Henry Holmberg, and that's what's making me – Keep saying Henry Holmes, uh, and I'm sorry, Henry, for lumping you in with H.H. H. Holmes. Well, he, but <laughs> he called himself Henry Howard Holmes. Well, I'm I'm, I'm certainly going to uh, confuse that further, I'm sure. Uh, but right now, Henry Holmberg's like, thanks a lot, buddy, and I apologize for that. But anyway, uh, you know, before we get too far ahead, uh, you know, Herman Webster Mudgett, your your great great grandfather, uh, he is. Building a life for himself and uh, in, in arriving in Chicago. Uh, and until that point, you know, 
he's not exactly an upstanding individual when he arrives in Chicago. He's already got a little bit of a checkered past. He was a grave driver for one thing. But... <laughs> well, Maurice can explain to our listeners that's how he paid for his tuition at the University of Michigan Medical School. That's very true. It certainly was. So he was he was grave robbing and selling the 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 bodies to to the medical school. Yes, and that would I mean that would fetch you a pretty penny back in those days because it wasn't as easily you know, it wasn't so easy to procure those bodies. That's very true. It wasn't. It was very difficult, as a matter of fact, and they were uh, going for a good price. I understand. I don't. You know, I've always wondered about that. I don't know how much he made on each skeleton. I know his were. Uh, known to be quite pristine later on when the murder castle was in operation. I don't know about when he was robbing graves, but I can tell you this. I was at a book signing in Iowa, and a doctor came up to me, uh, a doctor that was um, one of the professors at the medical school at one of the universities there in Iowa and said that they had uh, removed one of the skeletons they had in their medical museum because they were concerned that it had been bought from homes. Wow. Mm. That's a good one. I didn't hear, never heard that. No, that was just me, a doctor coming up to my face and telling me, uh, he shook my hand and told me the, uh, what had gone on. And, uh, he, you know, I don't think he had absolute proof it was a home skeleton, but it was interesting nonetheless. Yes. So is there truth to the story then, uh, that, uh, he was actually taking out insurance policies on these bodies and, and then, disfiguring them to make it look like they were killed in some kind of accident and then making himself the beneficiary of those insurance policies. Is that how he was able to amass uh, some money on his way to Chicago? Well, I don't know who's going to answer that, but uh, certainly it, 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 was, it was part of his, uh, his itinerary to do such a thing. Uh, I know that uh, he had a, an insurance policy on Ben Pitzel, for instance, who was his uh, accomplice and his henchman for a good long time, and uh, tried to collect on that corpse. Do you remember that, Jeff? You know, I've never been able to establish proof of one life insurance policy. I know that's the story that mm-hmm. the New York Times. That's the story that the New York Times ran in a number of their articles. I know that a number of authors had run that that legend about the life insurance policies. But, you know, Maurice, you can help me with this. More and more of the Holmes legend, you have to be very careful about following what some author has written before and establishing some kind of fact or truth because what I'm determining is many of those facts were actually <laughs> created by Holmes while he was in his prison cell awaiting execution when he gave those interviews with the, uh, the newspaper. So yeah, The Philadelphia Inquirer, I know. Uh, yeah. As a matter of fact, he was paid quite well for that. And it is my belief, since he turned to Catholicism <laughs> 10 days before he died, according to what I know, uh, he was buried in holy ground, which is, you know, almost completely unheard of. I went out to his uh, grave. It's actually a double plot in uh, outside of Philadelphia, the uh, Holy Ghost Cemetery, pretty sure. Uh, and it was, 
kind of an eerie thing with snow on the ground and there was no marker, no no stone whatsoever and just this area of snow that he's uh, buried in cement under uh, six or nine feet of cement. That's I was there last year also, Maurice, and you're right. There is no marker. It's a double plot. He bought two plots. And the most interesting thing I found was the tree next to the plots, which was, it looked like it had been struck by lightning over and over again. <laughs> oh, no. And the trees around it were just fine. Just this one tree had been beaten up by the lightning, which I found kind of eerie. And uh, obviously it's a natural event. It has nothing to do with supernatural or the paranormal shall we say? Well, maybe. (laughs) Well, I I think you could uh, probably give the boys a little uh, lesson on what happened after he died, the people who were uh, strangely uh, lost their lives. Well, we'll we'll definitely get into that. We have about two minutes left uh, before the end of this hour, uh, which we'll take a break for the news, and then when we come back, we'll talk further about this, and we'll talk more, too, about the, the Hollywood film, because, of course, uh, as we've learned over the years in covering a lot of the true stories behind some of the Hollywood pictures, uh, and I'm thinking of The Conjuring, for example, as, as, a, as an example of a true story that was uh, researched and written in a book and then was kind of shifted around a little bit for Hollywood purposes. So we'll talk about that coming up uh, in the next hour as well. But in just the two minutes that we have left, Jeff, you made a good point about having to kind of follow your own path in the research and not taking everything that other researchers have presented at face value. Part of that problem is, as you mentioned, you know, Holmes concocting a lot of these stories himself. But another problem is the fact that we're talking about an era of yellow journalism and sensationalism in the news media and where they would jump all over a story like this and they would embellish certain facts in order to sell newspapers. And, and, you know, truth be damned, it was more important to have a good story. Uh, As they say in The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance, one of my favorite quotes of all time, when the legend becomes fact, print the legend. And that seems to be the case with a lot of the Holmes stories, too. You know, you're exactly right, Tim, and you you were talking about an individual with a high IQ who was not only the most prolific serial killer, he was also the most prolific liar that ever lived. And uh, what people don't realize, while he was in his prison cell giving those interviews, he actually selected the journalists he would talk to. And he actually (laughs) said no to the ones he didn't want to talk to. So. He, he was paid $6,000, I think, Maurice, by the, uh, what was the uh, huge news organization at the time? I believe um, that was the Philadelphia Inquirer. It was, yeah, the Hearst Syndicate, though, right? It was, it was yeah. part of the that. The Hearst Syndicate paid him $6,000, which was a huge amount of money at the so time for that. That's how he paid his way into the Catholic Cemetery, I think. <laughs> the yellowest of the yellow, the Hearst newspapers. Well, the, uh, we are just about out of time for this hour. We'll jump right back into this topic coming up following the news. We'll take your calls as well for our guest, Jeff Mudgett, 508-996-0500, 877-996-1420. I know there's a lot of folks out there that are listening that are fascinated with the home story, and they'll probably have some questions for us before the night is through. Again, 508-996-0500, 877-996-1420. We'll be back in a moment with more Spooky South Coast on WBSM.
Welcome back to Smoothie South Coast. Tim Weisberg, along with science advisor Matt Moniz and our special guest co-host tonight, Maurice Disjardins. And we are talking about H.H. Holmes with our guest, Jeff Mudgett, the author of the book Bloodstains, which you can check out at his website, bloodstainsthebook.com. You can pick up the book there as well as wherever books are sold, really, and, uh, and digital downloads are available as well, plus an audio book uh, if you would prefer to find out more about the story that way as well. And, of course, uh, Maurice's book is called The Devil's Alibi, which you can also get on all the websites as well. And I, I can tell you, you cannot get enough uh, information about H.H. H. Holmes. And, and as we're talking here, the, the research is ever-evolving. But we are going to kind of lay out a timeline for folks, because a lot of people are not familiar with the story of Holmes and exactly what went down uh, in Chicago. And so we'll talk about that. And also we're going to get a little bit into the movie that uh, is forthcoming as well. We'll talk about all of that, and we'll take your calls at 508-996-0500-877-996-1420. And, of course, we refer to H.H. Holmes as America's Jack the Ripper, but is there a connection with London's Jack the Ripper? We'll talk about that as well coming up. Uh, And, of course, Jeff, as we're talking about all this, and uh, we were discussing in the last hour that a lot of the stories that are coming out there are – you know, sensationalized that are uh, the truth has kind of been expanded upon for storytelling purposes, both from Holmes and from the newspapers that were covering him. But we also have to kind of look at America at the time. Uh, America, you know, in the post Civil War era, was uh, you know starved for uh, these types of stories of you know kind of there was a lot of focus on antiheroes uh in that time period and and it, you know the stories of Billy the Kid and in the dime novels and and all of these outlaw all this outlaw culture that was pervading the media do you think that that H H Holmes was kind of seen uh, for all of his heinous despicable acts as maybe being one of those type of antihero type characters you know i've probably done 200 of these shows Tim and that's uh, an excellent depiction of what may have been going on and why his story um, was told the way it was by the journalists who, while they said they were writing truth, uh, it's, it's the more research I do, the, the, the least, the less actually comes out. Now, that doesn't mean it's any less sensationalized, the story, once you dig into the facts. But like you say, they, they may have been trying to sell copies. Mm-hmm. And Holmes was obviously the O.J. Simpson of the time. And his trial, his trial was a national event which had focus all across the country. Um, I'm told that every seat in that courtroom was taken by journalists from around the country wow. who would race out after every witness to uh, send the, late, the latest story to their to their editors back in their main city. So I think you've got a point. I think you're on the right track with why the story is as it was. And, you know, before we go any further, I wanted to tell Maurice, um, I really enjoyed his book, Devil's Alibi, and I highly recommend it. Well, thank you, sir, very, very much. I had no idea you read it. Yes, I did. Thank you very much. I'm very sorry to say I haven't read yours yet. (laughs) We'll we'll fix that. We'll certainly fix that. Uh, So now in... Building this this legend of Holmes, uh, you know, when we were already talking a little bit about the fact that he's uh, been kind of a, a despicable character in, in working his way to Chicago and selling, you know, selling grave robbing essentially and selling the bodies uh, in order to to get money. Uh, when he arrives in Chicago, 
he gets a job, and 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 that job quickly helps him start on this on this murderous rampage. Druggist assistant, wasn't it true, Jeff? I think you're on the right track. That, that's another of the uh, the stories which are hard to nail down exactly, although Maurice and I can give you Holmes' M.O. I think he identified a couple who owned the pharmacy uh, that he was interested in. Mr. and Mrs. Holden? For them. The husband either grew ill, strangely ill, or disappeared, and then Holmes found himself, Maurice, you can help me with this, I think he found himself on the the uh, the widow's life insurance policy. Well, he charmed Mrs. Holden, that's for sure. And all of a sudden, he owned the pharmacy. Hmm, true. And across the street, of course, is where he a- built the infamous castle. Across the street, he bought the property at Junction Grove, they called it back then, because it was at a perfect location where the trains would meet from downtown out to the lake where Holmes knew the World's Fair was going to be in three or four years or five years. I'm not sure the exact duration. Yeah. That was uh, certainly a, a brainchild of his. And, of course, he, he uh, hired a lot of typewriters, what they called them, typewriters in those days, secretaries. And uh, you know, Maurice, I think um, his purchase of that property, you know, in, in uh, expectation of the World's Fair is probably the most, heinous um, example of premeditated murder there is ever in history. He, he bought that property. He built that hotel with murder in mind years in advance, knowing he would need it to uh, conduct the experiments and obtain the profits he knew he could get from those dead bodies. It's also interesting the way it was built. He would build. He would hire a construction crew, and then he would fire them, and you know, and then he'd hire another one, and do the same thing. <clears throat> and uh, of course, it was insanely built, <laughs> as, you, as you well know. Yeah, and that's Eric Larson goes into that. I didn't go into that much. Eric Larson went into that in The Devil in the White City, which is going to be the movie we're all talking about now. But he went into that how Holmes would hire a contractor. When the contractor started obtaining too much knowledge about the entire project, Holmes would fire or remove that contractor and hire another um, now, whether that was Holmes's intent and that's what was in Holmes's mind, no one will ever know. But I think that's a good theory. I believe it is. So this this castle, as it, as it was called, is is being built uh, solely for the purpose of of capturing and holding, confusing, making it impossible for victims to escape. Uh, basically, turning this into uh, the the tool in which. Uh, Holmes can can murder his victims, and it's not just a matter of closing them in. But he actually had some, at least from from what I've read, he's had had some uh, ingenious ways of doing in his victims through the use of the castle. He actually was creating uh, certain rooms that would be uh, solely for the purpose of, of killing the victims. Very true. <clears throat> yeah, I like the way you uh, phrased it as a tool. Um, other authors have called it the factory of death. And I think that's right on. That's in, that's what he was intending, and that's why I like to use the word premeditated to describe his construction of this building. And um, whether 
the legend and the stories of young ladies visiting the hotel, being directed to a specific room, then being gassed where they were run down a greased chute where they landed on a gurney in the basement where he would conduct his experimentation, his torture, or whatever. Um, those, those are good theories and conjecture, but as Maurice will, will back me up on this, not one murder was ever investigated in the quote-unquote murder castle. It was never called the murder castle until no. later. Right. Um, while um, he owned it, I'm, I'm not exact. It's, uh, what was the name of the hotel that it went by, Maurice? I don't recall, but I know I that Patrick, uh, Patrick Quinlan was his, uh, his uh, well, with what, his accomplice, or uh, rather his, uh, whatever you might want to call him, bodyguard, whatever. But uh, Pat Quinlan stayed in the castle even after he was uh, hanged, as I understand. Yeah, I, I think Patrick Quinlan was, was Holmes's Frankenstein's assistant, and uh, yeah. Igor. he definitely knew what was going on and the heinous crimes that... Uh, either took part in or did not report to the law to uh, law enforcement about. So I understood he committed suicide. Do you think he committed suicide? That's what I understand. I, I would, uh, I would, uh, that would make a lot of sense. Well, I, I mean, at least the, the title that I've seen is that it was called the World's Fair Hotel. And the idea being, you know, as you mentioned, premeditating the murder of people when they come in for the World's Fair in 1893. So this becomes the centerpiece for people from all over to come into Chicago. They're looking for a place to stay. And, of course, here's this, you know, beautiful, recently built uh, 100-plus room hotel where they can all come and stay. And, and I'm sure that, you know, when you're, when you're thinking... How can I get the most people to fill up this hotel? You're offering the best rates in town. Uh, had, if they if they had Expedia.com back then, they probably would have been the lowest rate uh, out of anybody on there. But they're bringing in all of these people into Chicago, which if you are a sick and twisted individual like Holmes was, you know this is a, a smorgasbord of potential victims. Was there any... In, in the research that you've done, Jeff, or, or you, Maurice, was there any certain uh, pattern to who it was that he picked as his victims? I know there had been mentioned that a lot of them were blonde, but was was there a lot of uh, similarities between those that he, that he decided to turn into victims? The way I understand it, they were men, women, and children, mostly women, but uh, they were children also, of which he put into uh, suitcases yeah. and locked the trunks. Do you remember that, Jeff? You know, I'm not aware of any um, habit or uh, M.O. that Holmes had in selecting victims. When I, when I argue... Uh, the Catherine Eddowes murder in London of, of the Ripper Five, I'm attacked usually by people who say that the Ripper didn't have Holmes's M.O. So when I'm up on stage, I'll routinely ask those same questioners, well, what was Holmes's M.O.? And there is no M.O. for Holmes. We, we know maybe the how he killed the two children that he was uh, tracked down for and tried. But as far as the killings at the castle, these are these are conjecture by journalists that have been turned into story by authors. Hmm. Quite true. It's very difficult to tell the truth from the uh, faction. 
Exactly. So then you're you're experiencing uh, all of these. You know, these people are going missing, uh, but then I'm assuming that with all of the hustle and bustle going around in Chicago, it probably wasn't that strange uh, to have some people go missing, to have some people that might have gone out there for the World's Fair and not gone back home. You know, some of them might have decided to stay in Chicago, and it's not like you could just, you know, look them up on the computer or ring them up because we're talking about uh, 1893. So in that era, it probably wasn't uncommon for people to go and visit a city and, and decide to stay. And so you have people who are missing that were never accounted for, that Holmes may not necessarily have murdered, but this is what is uh, making for a number that's not exact when it comes to determining how many victims he had. By you know, all means. Exactly. There, were, there were millions of people that attended the World's Fair. Law enforcement was overwhelmed, I would imagine, and Holmes, as you, as you accurately depicted, was probably as a lion on the savannah with herds of antelope before him, just excited that he had his selection, his choice, and hardly anyone was there to, to determine that he was, uh, that these missing young ladies that came from all over the country, maybe even around the world, um, had no way of contacting their families, and law enforcement was never alerted they were missing in the first place. Mind if I ask you a question, Jeff? Absolutely. What do you think was his method of getting rid of the bodies? The ones. Okay. This this is this is an aspect of the story that I I accepted from the stories I've written about the acid bass and the furnace. Except I've got some historian friends in Chicago who are now tracking down two businesses that Holmes owned at the same time. He owned a glass factory that never sold glass, and he owned a a concrete company that made concrete blocks that would routinely go out into the Chicago River at night and dump these blocks into the river. Now, it doesn't take, you know, a true crime expert to imagine If you own a glass factory and no glass is being sold, why is that company using the 1,000-degree temperatures that they had in those furnaces, and why would a concrete company be excluding blocks into the Chicago River at night? Well, I think we can all use our imagination and homes as the owner to determine that may have been how he was uh, getting rid of the uh, waste after he murdered these victims. So... When you reduce a human body to ash, the main component is calcium. Calcium is one of the components in making concrete. So uh, there is a possibility if some of these blocks were sold, you have human remains being built into certain buildings and being somebody into the paranormal. I wonder if that would explain certain places being haunted. Just something I'm tossing out. That's the first time I've ever heard that theory. It, it makes uh, it makes sense, and I uh, I tell you what, you need to get someone um, more knowledgeable in the subject of concrete than I, as far as its makeup and how it's how it's made from uh, cement um, to answer. I think. So we need some more hard facts, some more concrete evidence. Uh, <laughs> sorry, I had to. <laughs> Very good. I had to. Well, well. So this is you know, we're talking about uh, a, a time when. 
uh, as you mentioned, you know, it's very hard for people to stay in communication with those who have disappeared. But the numbers uh, that I've seen, and, and you can tell me if these are accurate, but uh, there was, what, nine confirmed murders, but suspe- suspicion of, of perhaps over 200. Maurice, do you want to answer that one? Well, it's very difficult to give an answer to that because, as you said, no one really knows. It's a very, very nebulous number. I've heard everything from 20. And, of course, at his hanging, he uh, he didn't uh, confess to any of this, as you well know. I mean, he confessed to abortions and, and a few other things, but certainly none of these heinous murders. Uh, could he have been the, the catch-all for all unexplained or... Uh, Un- unknown disappearances. In other words, could he be the person that they point as the boogeyman? He's the one that did it. That, that's why this yeah. Oh, we have an unexplained disappearance. It must have been another Holmes victim type right. of scenario. Yeah. You know what I fall back on, guys? I fall back on he spent a huge amount of money mm-hmm. in the, at the time to build this murder castle, this factory of death. To, to, he had a basement where murder was conducted. He had a basement where possibly human remains were eliminated so that the police couldn't identify victims or even evidence of crime. To think he only murdered nine there is ridiculous, in my opinion. So Absolutely. I, I tend to go on much higher than that. When, when uh, authors talk about Holmes' murders, they throw out the 27 number, which is the number he gave Hearst when he was doing the interview in the prison cell, and he later admitted that was a lie before he was allegedly hanged. Um, Then the authors routinely go up to 200. They throw that 200 number out. I don't know where they get that number. I I tend to think it's even higher than 200, and I think one day we'll prove it. It just... uh, I think this Hollywood movie being made, it's going to be an epic. It's going to be the most expensive major motion picture ever. I think the whole story is going to explode in American history. And I think many of these questions we've had, you know, these last 10, 20, 30 years about homes are going to be answered because people are going to find it worthwhile to go dig up the real. Sorry, I had to go dig up. You used concrete cement and um, they're going to dig up these facts and we're going to find out the truth all right now is there a possibility of going into the old police records back then do they still exist can you go looking for a number of missing persons reports and try and put something together with that you know do you know adam seltzer he's probably the leading historian in chicago about that time period about crime at the time, and, and actually even H.H. H. Holmes. And uh, he'd be a good fellow to have on your show. He's uh, uh, He runs the uh, tours, the H.H. H. Holmes tours in Chicago, and um, he could probably answer that question and hit it right out of the park. Well, you had mentioned uh, just just a moment ago about this being the most expensive motion picture ever made. So this is this is going to be topping some of the epic films that we've seen produced uh, over the years uh, in terms of the the cost of the production. Oh, they're going to spend three, four hundred million dollars. My Hollywood insider buddies are telling me. Um, DiCaprio's fifty million. Scorsese's twenty or thirty. Yeah, that's true. You know, you're already you're yeah. already at eighty, and you're probably going to have two thousand people working on the production. And 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 Maurice can uh, uh, 
back me up on this. They're going to have to recreate the murder castle, which is going to be a huge expense. It'll be amazing. I hope they do it as a regular building so they can put it over at Universal and we can all go visit it when the movie's over. I mean, imagine that. That's Listen, a wonderful I, oh, idea. I don't mean to cut you off, Maurice, but I think it's a bad idea for us to put a mudget in a replica of the murder castle. <laughs> I'm just, okay. People are going to talk, Jeff, if you do that, I think. Uh, I, I, might, uh, I might have a job over there. <laughs> but, but then they're going to do blue screen of the Chicago World's Fair, and I know my, my friends are like, already on Paramount, demanding that they do it as historically accurate as they can. Because, you know, the Chicago World's Fair was one of the greatest events in world history. Absolutely. You had, Tesla, you had Edison, you had all the great scientists of the world there. It's and also one of the most... Hollywood's opportunity to make maybe the, the best major motion picture ever made. It certainly will be a... a I, I'm surprised Spielberg isn't doing it, actually. <clears throat> well, I think he's got he's got some other plans uh, coming down the pipeline of things, but I'm sure that um, this is going to be an, an epic grand scale. And now you're talking about having all those great thinkers of the era staying there, you know, uh, being there, being involved in the city and being involved in the fair at that time. Just imagine how much the uh, direction of the world could have changed if Edison or Tesla had managed to find their way into that murder castle. Yeah. You know, I'd never, uh, I'd never thought about that. I, I don't. They were of such. I don't know. Was Tesla of great stature at the time? Not at the no. Not at the time. No, he was. Uh, it wasn't until later that he was kind of honored for a lot of his work, and, and people looked at his work favorably. But still, I mean, I, I'd like to think Edison was probably staying. You know, whatever the version of the Ritz Carlton is in in Chicago at the time. I, I would have. I, I think you're right. I know Buffalo Bill was camped out uh, outside of the fair. So you've got everybody in the world all focused on Chicago and, and all these uh, major minds. Well, meanwhile, probably the most evil mind that has ever existed is, is trolling around the fairgrounds looking for, you know, future victims. Uh, it just creates a, a very cre- – I mean, there's, there's no movie that we've seen that equals the amount of creep factor in this story so far. Absolutely. You know, and that's the problem they're having with the movie. This – this movie's been, quote-unquote, in production for over 10 years. And finally, Warner Brothers just gave up on it. And the story, and I know a lot of your listeners have, have read The Devil in the White City, which is a wonderful book, but the story is 80% about Daniel Burnham, the architect of Chicago and the World's Fair, and only 20% about H.H. H. Holmes, which the author included in the book because he knew a story about an architect would be a hard sell. And that 20% figure is not going to work for Leonardo DiCaprio, trust me. I'm surprised they didn't use something like the Scarlet Mansion or Torture Doctor, one of those. Uh, I, I agree with you. Something. Um, I think the movie's going to be about the murder castle and Holmes. They're going to have to tie in Daniel Burnham, the architect, with Holmes somehow. I think they'll... Look the other way as far as historical accuracy is concerned, which Hollywood does quite often. They're, you know, they're telling a story. I always try to be fair with them, Maurice. They've got two or three hours to tell a story that you and I had years to write. That's <laughs> true. So when, when and as you mentioned, you know, Leonardo DiCaprio is going to be chewing up all that scenery as home, so they're going to want to maximize, you know, their investment and, and also maximize his performance. Uh, but when you're 
when they're putting on the film, there's a tendency, just as we're mentioning, you know, the way they might have been looking for an anti-hero in, in the late 1880s, early 1890s, there might be a tendency in the film to glorify Holmes and, and to turn him into almost like a folk hero type figure. That's something that they have to be very careful of, too, because you don't want to turn him into a uh, you know, a, a folk hero. You don't want to turn him into uh, somebody that people will look at and say, you know what, you have to admire him. As crazy as he was, as evil as he was, you know, he's he's somebody that you need to admire and revere. And certainly you don't want to have a, a copycat or anything like that happen as a result of this. I think it would be the uh, Frank Geyer would be the hero of the film, actually. And he wrote the most, uh, uh, the most, enlightening book about him, I think, at the time. Do you remember that, Jeff? Oh, yeah. And, but that, See, Hollywood runs up against that two- or three-hour time time limit, which how do you how do, you do Frank Guy or how do you do the uh, arrest of Holmes, which was probably one of the greatest chases by law enforcement of a criminal across the country into Canada, the country had ever seen, and then the trial of Holmes, which... Uh, is a fascinating subject in itself. I mean, Holmes fired his own lawyers, conducted his own defense, and some of the methods he used, as and he had never practiced law, he had never gone to law school, some of the, the methods he used are still taught at, at moot courts in law schools in the country today. Wow. Right, I didn't know that. Uh, and, and, and this was it part of the newspaper stories or part of the uh, trial when he... Uh, claimed of, of being possessed by the devil, or, or is that just folklore as well? Maurice, I think that, that famous quote we always read about Holmes, I think he made that up when he was doing the interview with Hearst, but I'm not sure. I'm quite sure you're right. As a matter of fact, uh, the, the psychiatrist who actually worked on him, I did find out who he was, and uh, he... Uh, did say that Holmes was guilty, you know, without equivocation. You know, uh, but uh, he, he used uh, all sorts of instruments on Holmes, which is interesting in itself. Oh, you know, he was guilty. My research of the trial, I, you know, I practiced trial law in California. My, my research of the trial, the evidence was sketchy. The prosecutor had very little evidence about these alleged murders that he was on trial for. As a matter of fact, I doubt that evidence would have secured a conviction today for a uh, for a suspect or for a uh, a criminal. Now, um, well, Texas was ready to take him for horse wrestling, weren't they? The world knew he was guilty. I mean, everyone knew what Holmes was, and I think the jury just pretty much threw their hands up and said, yeah, take him away and hang him. <laughs> well, I, I definitely think that the, you know, some of the more interesting aspects of his personality and, and the way that he presented himself later, I think he was... You, you read, you look into part of it, and you think delusional, but it also seems like it could have also been, you know, all uh, pre-planned in his mind. Is just as he was planning these murders, he's kind of planning on how he wants to go down and how he wants to be remembered. So it's not just the random ramblings of a madman, as much as it is, you know, implanting this this legacy uh, in into the minds of those who are chronicling the story and those who would be reading it. So it. To me, it seems like he was kind of writing his own legend as he went along. The ultimate egomaniac? Yeah. One wonders why he said what he said on the uh, 
on the uh, platform just before he was hanged. Uh, you know, and, and not admitting to the, these terrible crimes that he committed, but simply saying that, you know, they were uh, uh, <clears throat> abortions or, or such and such. I forget exactly what he said, but it was nothing like the truth. You know, I, I think he was definitely diabolical. And while people find it easy to think he said something silly or stupid or dumb, I tend to think he was playing chess almost everything he did in those interviews with the press. And I always try to look a little deeper as to what were his motives that possibly caused him to say those things, you know, Maurice brought up. And uh, whether we ever find out the truth, or not is questionable. It's like it's like you know when you get into evidence about Jack the Ripper, but it's a fascinating subject, um, which I don't think I'll ever be able to let go of. And I got to tell you, every week I have someone contact me with new information about H. H. Holmes, and some of it is quite fascinating. And and I tend to have an open mind about it now. I don't just dust it off as another silly theory or concept. And um, we have, I have a friend now in Philadelphia who's going to work with me. We're going to secure the exhumation of that concrete tomb of really? in that um, Holly, Holly Field Cemetery. And we think we're going to shock the world with what we find after we do a DNA analysis. So um, he's, he's a story that still hasn't been told. I'm I'm just excited that Hollywood's going to tell the story as they know it because that's going to tell the world, billions of people, about this monster, and it's going to make his story much more interesting to those of us like you know Maurice and I who will have the chance to uh, maybe learn more interesting facts that haven't been told yet. Well, I definitely want to get into the Jack the Ripper subject, but uh, from your website, bloodstainsthebook.com, where you can get Jeff Mudgett's book, Bloodstains, uh, you have a great quote that kind of describes the way that we've been talking about Holmes' personality and his mindset, and, and it says here on the, on your site, Holmes was Machiavelli, Svengali, Rasputin, and more rolled into one finely tuned killing machine. And that seems to kind of sum it up. You know, I'll take some of the evilest people that ever lived and roll them into one, and, and that's what you have with H.H. H. Holmes. Uh, and, and that would be kind of the way a lot of people would describe Jack the Ripper, this character that we know to be Jack the Ripper. And, and I know that, you know, you, you want people to read your book and you want people to, to come and see some of your lectures and discussions, but you found enough uh, to, to, to make those connections between, between Holmes and Jack the Ripper? You know, I stand behind that quote 100%, so I'm, I'm glad you, uh, you read it over the, over the air. It's... Uh... I hadn't thought about it in a while myself, and uh, it's right on about Holmes. I, I really, uh, I really do believe that. You know, um, there's only one chapter in Bloodstains about him possibly being um, Jack the Ripper, and I and I like to say that on these shows, Tim, because I don't like people to rush off to buy the book thinking it's going to be about Jack the Ripper, because there are two billion people in the world who are interested somehow, some way, in Jack the Ripper. Now, Bloodstains is about H.H. H. Holmes and about how me learning he was my great-great-grandfather changed my life. And what I do is I ask my readers to step into my shoes and have them 
ask themselves what they would have done in my place. That, that's what my book's about. So it's, it's not competing with the devil in the white city. It's not competing with the torture doctor. It's more about how that knowledge changed my life. But when I had written the book, Jim, I, I was contacted by a gentleman uh, from Pennsylvania, and um, he told me that he'd been studying one of the murders, one of the Ripper Five, Caffrinettos, um, and Holmes' possible connection for over 10 years, that he'd done some work with the British Library about it. Well, I, I did as most people do when another author brings up another theory about another possible suspect of Jack the Ripper. And I know, and I know everyone there in the studios, you're nodding your head right now because we all have that in our head. Um, there's been two or three in the last year alone that have been thrown out now. So I, I, I did the same, but, but then I started looking at the material I have about Holmes. Um, I couldn't establish that he was there in 1888, you know, on the exact date, but I knew he traveled to Europe, and I could prove it. I knew he liked London, Paris, and Berlin. I knew he traveled on the steamships from New York to Southampton. Yeah, you know, there was a man of fabulous wealth. He uh, was quite, um, he liked to dress up. He liked to hang with the rich people. He was very intelligent and intellectual. That's what people did back then with money. When we started looking at the evidence, I was contacted by a, uh, an investigator from Scotland Yard who had retired that told me to keep an eye out on the computer composite that Scotland Yard and the BBC had created of Jack the Ripper from the 13 eyewitness testimonies. Most people don't even know that, but there were 13 eyewitness testimonies of what Jack the Ripper supposedly looked like. Well, I went and grabbed this composite, and lo and behold, it looks like Holmes. I took it to an expert on computer composites, and he showed me the technique they used to try to match the composite with the photo, and there's like a 10-point outline, and lo and behold, all 10 points work, especially the nose. When you look at the computer composite and the photograph of Holmes, both are broken. Hmm. I went and researched, and lo and behold, Holmes had a broken nose. Well, now I was starting to get interested. I tracked down the Dear Boss letter, and I, I just uh, gave this discussion at the uh, Michigan Paracon last weekend um, to a packed house. We put the evidence up on the stage. We swore the audience in as my grand jury. I acted as <laughs> prosecutor. We presented the evidence, and then we asked them to vote at the end of the uh, at the end of the, the talk. And we almost had a unanimous vote that probable cause had been uh, secured. So anyway, I then went to the University of Buffalo where there's a corporation that does computer comparisons of handwriting, not just an expert testimony or opinion. They came back with a 97% number on a letter we secured from the University of Michigan archives that Holmes had wrote, written his lawyer and the Dear Boss letter in London. Hmm. Dear Boss was the first, was the letter where Jack the Ripper, it was signed Jack the Ripper, and that was the first time London saw the phrase Jack the Ripper. 
I mean, I'm just looking at the photograph, the composite photograph compared side by side with Holmes, and and, and to me, that's that's a 97% match in my book, just the photographs. And Look you're... at the nose. Look at the nose, Tim. Hmm. And, and even the, the, the shape of the, which, you know, you, you're surprised with some of these eyewitness testimonies at how quickly they can they can uh, get a lasting look at this, too. But the, the nose, especially, is at the top of the nose uh, more than anything. And even the ear placement, you know, it seems like both of them have ears exactly at the right angle and exactly sticking out. It's just, it's, it's incredible. It's, a, it's an amazing, um, I'm, I'm enjoying it. I got to go on the TED, you know, TED Talks. Mm-hmm and present the evidence to an audience of lawyers, doctors, journalists, scientists, um, professors. Um, over 3,000 people were there. Um, unfortunately, they only give you uh, 15 minutes, and they demanded that I take the first six minutes to identify my book and myself and my relationship with H.H. H. Holmes. So I was given eight minutes to prove that H.H. H. Holmes was Jack the Ripper, which was hardly enough time, but... We secured when we when we asked that that audience was given remote controls, and they voted at the end of my talk, and we secured over seventy five percent guilty from the evidence. And so, it, I was going to say, if people want to see that TED talk, they can see it on bloodstainsthebook.com. Correct, correct, and that was um, one of the most exciting events of my life. The TED is an amazing thing. Some of the speakers there, I, I, I didn't think I belonged with the group of people they had talking. And like I said, the audience is incredible. incredible. And um, you walk out on stage, and you're, there's a group of teleprompters at your feet and these huge screens behind you. And there's a, a team of computer experts in a room behind you. It looks like they're launching a NASA rocket. It's an amazing event, and um, I'll never forget it. But what it what it gave me was the credibility that if the TED wanted to accept this evidence, the rest of the world should at least consider it. And now, um, next Thursday night, I get to go on Coast to Coast with uh, George Noring. He he wants to discuss the evidence that Holmes could have been Jack the Ripper. Well, and, and again, I you know I mentioned too the photograph, uh, the composite of Jack the Ripper, and the photograph of Holmes. And if you're on bloodstainsthebook.com, scroll down a little bit underneath where you can order the book, and you can actually see uh, the photos uh, overlaid, and you can see the similarities between them. We, but if it does turn out though that it, that Holmes was Jack the Ripper, and you had mentioned earlier that nobody really knows Holmes's M.O. They didn't know how he targeted his victims. and Whereas with Jack the Ripper, it was kind of a clear case of who he was targeting. Uh, I mean, do you feel like, and of course it's all speculation, but would he have changed the way that he operated going over to London uh, based on the fact that he was in a different city and that he was in a place where he didn't have this murder castle where he could pull things off? Do you feel like if it was him and he went to London, it was more about just being able to have the thrill of committing those murders and they weren't as well planned out as they had been in Chicago? Good question, Tim. But from my discussions with law enforcement, Scotland Yard and uh, London um, police, they've for decades believed that copycats were involved in Jack the Ripper, which was why it's never been solved. Um, there is no ammo connection with the Catherine Eddowes murder to the fourth and fifth murders, especially Mary Kelly, who was murdered in her house. Um, the first two murders, they're not even sure if those are connected to the same man. All I'm trying to say is we think 
from the Dear Boss letter and the handwriting that matches Holmes and that computer composite, we think we can prove that he killed Catherine Eddowes, the one one of the five Ripper victims. So, and, I, and to tell you the truth, as an ex-trial lawyer, I think that's why it's never been solved. The authors, the criminologists, the Ripperologists, the historians have tried to match all five murders with every suspect when it wasn't one man. There was probably two or three involved in those five murders. Hmm. It's very conceivable. I see what you're saying. However, do you have any evidence at all that he was in London at that particular time? I'm asked that often. If the Dear Boss letter is his, he had to have been in London for it to have been postmarked when it was. It would have been impossible to have written that letter in New York and had it delivered in time for the murder to have occurred when it did, which the letter references the young lady who will have her ear removed, and she did. Well, I have to ask then, if if even the UK Jack the Ripper aside, just looking at the... I hate to use the term body of work, but you know, just looking at the the path of destruction that H. H. Holmes left in Chicago alone and in America alone, and you saying that when you first found out about this, you know, there was there was a lot of coming to terms with it with your own family. Now that you're public with it, now that you're out there talking about it, you've written the book, sharing your experience, sharing what that journey has been like for you to find out about this connection in your family, and going out there and meeting people and, and discussing this with people, I have to say, it seems like you've been very... It doesn't seem like you've suffered too much of a, a negative turn from people uh, in, in revealing this information. You know, your grandfather were keeping it a secret for all those years for the fear of what could happen to your family if it got out. It seems like, for one thing, nobody has really lumped you in with, with these deeds of H.H. Holmes, and it seems like you've been able to uh, be very welcomed in your research and, and welcomed in your presentations without being ostracized for being uh, connected to such a, a prolific murderer. You know what, Tim? I'm quite proud of my family, and I think the story of Holmes and my family should be used to maybe define more of human nature, because... We're talking about, you know, you, you go on, you go on Google, you go to psychology today. They have articles about DNA and chromosomes and lineage and, and genetics, okay? Well, my family comes from the worst there is, all right? Not one was a criminal. Not one was a problem to society. All paid their taxes. Two were war heroes. They were, one was a politician, as Maurice mentioned. They were all good American citizens. And quite frankly, I think our story proves it has to do with choice, Tim. It has nothing to do with DNA and genetics. Nothing. And I think that is an incredible definition for me to be able to say to my audiences. And I, and I stand up proud to do it. And, and after my talks, Tim, um, people want to meet me. They want to come over. I sell out my books every show. And it's, I, I tell you what, I think uh, where I used to run away from the story, now I'm quite proud, and I, and I like to proclaim it to the world. 
Well, it also helps, too, Jeff, that you are a great dancer, which I think, <laughs> <laughs> having seen it with my own eyes, I was like, wow, that guy can move. No, uh, that was because Rosalind had me going. She motivated me. Uh, you know, she has a habit of doing that to, to a lot of folks. Uh, but I will say this. I, I think that people have reached a point where, you know, they, they feel that way. You know, we, we look at, you know, being here a stone's throw from the Lizzie Borden bed and breakfast. The people in this area are proud to be Bordens, and, and, and they don't worry about that one little stain in their family legacy, the same that you have in, with H.H. Holmes, but you know how the media works, too. If anybody in your family, you know, got arrested for jaywalking, it would be headlines, you know, descendant of H.H. Holmes, you know, caught breaking the law. Uh, and because of that, I think people have an understanding for what you could have gone through. What could have been the result uh, had there not been uh, so much other positive, uh, inf- you know, positive lineage for you to embrace as well? So, uh, I mean, it also helps too that the the people who are reading your book are probably sick and twisted individuals who love this kind of stuff and and, and would never judge anybody else anyway. <laughs> I'm looking at you, Kristen. I'm looking at you. <laughs> I get quite a few people that tell me they read the book four or five, six times, and that it changes their life, and I. And I think once they understand, it's not about just about this monster that uh, you know people are fascinated with. It's, it's the human challenge, the spirit, and the voyage, as you mentioned, that we all can go through because we all have something like this in our life. And um, as my previous family did, they ran away from homes, Tim, at the turn of the century. They moved to California to get away from the stigma in New Hampshire and Chicago to hide away and. I just refuse to do that. I'm not going to do that. Well, and it seems like in doing so, in, in embracing this part of your legacy, you know, you're, you're telling a story that that America needs to know. We can't take all the negative history and sweep it under the rug. It's not just a matter of having these, you know, these things that fit into a true crime night on television. You know, this is something that, as you mentioned, it's about humanity. It's about the darker side of humanity, and we have to understand that side of our of our being, of our psyche, in order to be able to fully embrace who we are and to know what it is. You know, what's the dichotomy that exists in man? If if good versus evil is a real battle that exists in all of us, we have to see these extreme examples of evil to to accept the fact that there can be extreme good as well. Exactly. Hey, can I ask Maurice a question? Absolutely. Sure. Maurice, Maurice in all your studies and your writings about homes. What did you find the most fascinating about the man? Good question. Well, actually, originally, my story was to be about the psychology of the individual. But at that time, and even today, it's, it's almost impossible uh, to write a story like that. So originally, when I uh, began my history of uh, Holmes, uh, unfortunately, Torture Doctor came out and blew my whole story. <laughs> So then a little later on, when I rewrote the story with a partner, it went on for 1,250 pages. It was called HHH. was not published because it was too long, but a faction book came out at that time called The Scarlet Mansion, which, again, blew my whole faction idea. So... As it turned out, I finally had to cut it down to less than 300 pages, and uh, finally I got it published. But uh, unfortunately, it didn't get off the uh, ground like yours or others. 
Well, I, I mean, I think that one of the most fascinating things about this is that this level of darkness could exist in somebody, in, in somebody who at the time was probably considered, you know, a, a pretty positive member of the community. Absolutely. You know, looking at, at, at the, the wealth that he had and looking at the, you know, the, the building that he built and, and, and the business that he was operating and the multiple businesses he was operating, it just goes to show you that anybody, anyone that we encounter could have this evil lurking with inside them. Yeah, look at Bill Cosby. <laughs> right, exactly. Or Walt Disney, who was a well-known pedophile. So there's all these, you know, different sides of people, and and I think that's probably the biggest lesson learned is is that you never know who it is that you're dealing with. You never know if the devil is inside that person. You know, and and I I try to tell people there is no proof that he was psychotic. He was evil, and I want if. if that's the only thing, Tim, my book does and Maurice's book does is to have people understand that I think evil exists. It is a thing which exists in certain human beings, and it is a thing which all of us have to push back away from the forefront of our mental aspects because it's, it's not good. And it's not good for us to say, oh, that's just something man made up for the movies or for books to scare readers or listeners. You know, it's a something that exists that without law enforcement, without the fear of being caught, there is evil in human beings that we've got to be careful about and we've got to recognize. With the capital E is what you're saying? Well, yeah, yeah I mean, certainly, and, and personified. Yeah. Well, uh, we are just about out of time. Uh, we want to thank you, Jeff Mudger, for joining us tonight. Again, the website is bloodstainsthebook.com. If you want to pick up the physical copy, the hard copy of the book, or the ebook, or the audio book, they're all available there. You can view Jeff's TED Talk as well. We thank you so much for joining us, and uh, we look forward. We'll, we'll circle back around again, too, when the movie comes out, because I'll, I'll definitely, I don't want to say dying to get your opinion, but I'll definitely be looking forward to your opinion of the film when it's released. Hey, thanks for having me on. And, Maurice, it was a pleasure and an honor to be on with you. Oh, the honor is all mine, Jeff. I appreciate it very much. All right, Good thank, night. Have a great night. And, uh, and of course, if you want to pick up Maurice's book as well, The Devil's Alibi, you can find it on Amazon.com. Wherever you find books online, you can pick up your copy of that as well. That about does it for this week's show. We are out of time. Remember, if you miss a portion of this show or any of our programs, you can find all of our archives on uh, whether it be iTunes, wherever podcasts are found, they're all out there for everybody to listen to them at your own leisure. Download them, save them, collect them, whatever you want to do, and make sure you reach out to us and let us know who you are, where you're listening from, and how long you've been listening to. You can follow us on Twitter, at SpookySC. You can also email us, SpookyCrew, at SpookySouthCoast.com, and, of course, on Facebook, Facebook.com, slash SpookySouthCoast. So until, for, until next week, for Matt, for Matt, for Stephanie, for Lauren, I'm Tim, and we want you all to stay spooktacular.